When I read this passage for the first time and started to sort of unpack it, I was really quite struck by how much there is here. There might even be more points, but we'll stick to ten, okay? Um, so what I'm going to go, I'm going to go through each of the points, and feel free, feel free to ask questions and raise points, or you know, if things occur to you, uh, just put your hand up. What I want to try and do is record these sessions, so I'm, I'm recording this, and we've got a roving mic, so if you've got a question, we'll get a, a mic out to you so that people on the recording uh, can hear your questions, uh, if that's okay. So the first point, and this is point number one that you can write in your notes, um, number one is treat your difficult person as you would want to be treated. Treat your difficult person as you would want to be treated. Now, I would say occasionally you are going to get presented with a great opportunity or several opportunities to take advantage of your difficult person's vulnerability. That's just a reality. You might not th it may not appear for a long time, but sooner or later, that person that you're at odds with, there'll be something about them that will reveal that there's a vulnerability there. Now, in this story, uh, Saul is relieving himself in a cave. Okay? Now, I did a bit of work on the Hebrew word here, and it's, uh, what it literally means is that they've translated it as relieved, but it's, it literally means covering the feet. So it's not hard to imagine that he's kind of maybe dropped some clothes, they're covering his feet, and he is going to the toilet. Okay? And I would put it to you that it's probably not a we. It's probably the other thing. Okay? Okay, now, you know, the Bible is pretty direct and raw, isn't it? Okay? You're all looking really shocked. Well, some of you aren't, but anyway. Okay, so this is a, a commander who's got 3,000 men behind him, and he is ducked off to one side to go into this cave and to answer a call of nature. And his robes around his feet, and he's in a, actually in a very, it's, it's kind of humorous, but he's actually in a very vulnerable position. Okay? Now, the temp, just imagine uh, David's thinking here. The temptation for him to kill Saul just then would have been really high. Uh, so in 1 Samuel 24, what you've got is you've got a long, ever since uh, David beat Goliath, which we looked at last time, last week, there's, there was a, an, en, an enmity has built up between Saul and David because basically Saul has envy towards David's success. And it starts in the streets when uh, you know, the women come out and say, you know, Saul's killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that doesn't do wonders for a man's self-esteem to hear that. If you're in charge and if you're of a, a, even a slightly envious disposition in your nature and you're not secure in who you are in God and what you're called to be, you might look across at that person and experience a lot of envy, and Saul does do that. And they have this uh, adversity from that point onwards, and it weaves it in and out, and there's lots of different aspects of that. But this story we find ourselves in now is that Saul is aggressively pursuing David to do away with him. He's got 3,000 men with him, and David's on the run and hiding, and he's trying to avoid Saul. Okay? So Saul comes into the cave. He's in a very vulnerable state. And the temptation for David to take his opportunity would have been high. It really would. Now, one of the lessons I think that's so key, and that one of the most important lessons from, from this, is that as we attempt to love our enemies, we need to exercise the power we have over them or towards them at different points appropriately. If you suddenly find yourself handed a situation in which you could potentially take advantage of that situation and put that other person down, the wisdom would be, don't. Don't take advantage of someone else's vulnerability because that's not what you would have 
And that, you wouldn't want that for yourself, would you? You wouldn't want your adversary or someone you're practicing competition with or someone that you know doesn't like you to take advantage of your vulnerability. So the teaching I want to bring you is actively shield the other person's vulnerability at all times as you would hope that others would shield yours. That's a reasonable thing to, that's a reasonable starting point. Shield a person's vulnerability. Uh, there's this story, isn't there, in the Old Testament where uh, Noah builds a, a vineyard, gets drunk, is lying in his tent, he's not got many clothes on. Two of his sons get, uh, no, his youngest son goes in and is like, ridicule here, you ridicule him. And then the two older sons go in and they're going backwards with a blanket. They protect his vulnerability. Perhaps the youngest son didn't. If you do that, that other person has the chance to perceive that you've done that and there's an opportunity for a new dynamic in the relationship, isn't there? There's an opportunity, you, there's a preemptive thing going on there. If you show that you have protected that person even though you don't get on with them, that introduces a new dynamic to the situation, even if maybe it doesn't last or even if they don't deserve it or even if they abuse it. You are lifting that to a better place, aren't you? Jesus actually taught, this is one of the you know, when the, when the rich young ruler, no, one of the scribes, I think, goes up to Jesus and says, so what's the most important commandments? And Jesus says, uh, love God and love others. And the whole of the law and the prophets can be summed up in that statement. Uh, it says it in Matthew seven twelve. It says, do to others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. And that's, Matthew, and that's in Matthew seven twelve. And that's Jesus' teaching uh, straight from, from his own mouth. So the first lesson is... Treat your difficult person as you would want to be treated. Okay? Uh, number, number two, second one. Um, what I would say would be, uh, listen to the counsel, but then make your own decision. So listen to the counsel and make your own decision. Uh, David has got a group of men around him. Let's turn this off. Uh, he's got a group of guys around him who are all cajoling him along to take action. They're all encouraging him to... Uh, to do, you know, the killing, aren't they? Now, David hears the promptings of his men, but then he makes up his own mind about what's right. Just a little question for you, just pause there a second. Have there been, have there been any instances in history that you can recall uh, where perhaps if people had done that a bit more, things would have gone differently? Give me some examples, what do you think? Just so you've got a group or a, a grouping of people. Yeah, Michael. Has anyone watched that film about um, Churchill um, when he makes the decision to stand? It's a very recent film, I forget what it's called. Darkest Hour? Yes. Yeah. That was a, a case in point where all his ministers were against him. Okay. But he made up his mind and went for it. Great example. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you have an inner conviction that's what's right. And even if everyone around you is trying to cajole you the other way, sometimes you've got to have the character to say, no, I think this is the right thing to do. Yeah, Ruth? Which is Pilate to the crowd. Great example, yeah. Very good example. Pontius Pilate giving in to the crowd dynamic. So if Pontius Pilate had been in a cave, his soldiers would have talked him into killing Saul, wouldn't they? Yeah, Chloe? Wilberforce. Wilberforce, yeah. So Wilberforce... He it, came before every single year. Yeah. He did. And everybody around him was saying, no, it'll never happen. He yeah. Kept going. Yeah, very good. So you had a situation where he wanted to get rid of slavery, 
took it to Parliament, they basically laughed at him, and he got a tiny, tiny percentage. But as he successively brought it over the years, that percentage grew and grew and grew. I think he took the bill to Parliament something like 29 times or something. And then on one particular occasion, there was a few people out of the races, and he won it. And it went through. It became literally like they'd gone to the races, and there was a slightly reduced number in Parliament. He went, right, I'm taking this. And he won it, and it became law. Kept on persisting. But his character said, no, this is wrong, even though everyone around me is trying to persuade me that this is the right thing to do. So David's got the character to assess the situation, and he makes up his own mind. And so the teaching for us tonight is, are we, being in a, are we in a group that sometimes tries to persuade us into the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, to take the wrong action? Um, I think sometimes, you, well, I think you're going to have no end of advisors. And some of your advisors are going to tempt you to be more heavy-handed than you should be. That they could do that. And I think you must resist that temptation as much as you can. And ultimately, you must arrive at your own decisions. You, you should do. Um, you're not obliged to carry out someone else's plans that they have for you. You know, you can have a group of friends and they say, oh, they shouldn't be treating you like that. You should go and complain or you should do this, you should do that. Well, take stock, know in your own mind what it is you think you want to do, and then do that in your own conscience before God. And sometimes, as in this case, it runs right against the crowd advice. Okay? Um, something that I've noticed about this, and also from my own practical experience, it's actually very easy to give advice when you're not having to then deal with that difficult person yourself. You know, so if there's a group of you and one of you's got a problem relationship, it's very easy to get around and go, oh yeah, you should do this, you should do that, and all the rest of it. It's a bit different when you're the person in the, in the difficult relationship. It's dead easy to give advice on the side. It's not quite so easy to carry it out, is it? Okay, so that's number two. Uh, hear counsel or receive wisdom, but then make your own decisions. Number three, only do things that you'll always be able to live with. Only do things that you'll always be able to live with. Somebody once said that wisdom is when you would still make the same decision much later on with the benefit of hindsight. So you've got a decision here in time, and you think about it, you pray about it, you get good advice, you make the decision. And then the proof of wisdom is later down the line in time, you look back at that point and you go, do you know what, I would have made exactly the same decision today, even knowing all the things that have happened since then. That's wisdom, okay? So be careful about what you think you can take away from your difficult person. There's a really difficult relationship you've got. Let's say there's a neighbour playing their music too loud. There's a work colleague who really gets under your skin. Uh, there's a professional person that you don't think treats you properly. There's uh, lots and lots of different situations. Um, be careful about what you think you can take away from those difficult people. So in your, what I'm encouraging you to do is just be very careful about what you decide is okay to do or to take from this other person that you find so difficult and so hard to love. Now, the, this is how this works out in this story. David snips off a little bit of the rope, doesn't he? He sneaks up to Saul, uh, and, and then he agonises in his conscience over whether he should have really done that. So he kind of, uh, you know, he, 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 you can see the outworking in his mind of, what uh, this is what I could do, could do this. And he almost starts to step into it, doesn't he? And then some higher sense of conscience kicks in and says, well, no, yeah, you can, but should you? 
So now I think a lot of people would have run sore through with their sword. That's a golden opportunity to some people, and they'd have taken it. But I think David's self-restraint is pretty amazing. It's pretty strong, um, and he exercises the I ought not to, and he makes the ought not to more powerful than the I could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing which I struggled with, um, David had loads of opportunity in the past when other people assaulted him or cursed him or whatever, and, and he, would, he would take their life. But because he said that Saul was God's anointing, yeah. he didn't dare touch his life because he knew when God put somebody in a position, yeah. unless God actually specifically says, okay, yeah. I want you to do this, even though he had the opportunity, he didn't. No, that's right. And I think that's the key distinction. With the other people that David falls out with, like Goliath or whoever, he knows very clearly that they're his enemy. And there isn't an anointing upon them in their position from God. But David is highly respectful of the anointing that he has placed upon Saul. And he's very, very aware of that. And he he operates within that. Uh, I totally, totally see that point. Yeah, and so that prevents him. It's in fact his respect for God is the thing that stops him from behaving to Saul like he has behaved to lots of other people in conflict situations. And actually, that's a, that's a lesson for us. Does our respect for God and someone's anointing or position or authority or wherever they are in life, does our respect for God feed into how we treat that person? A very good point. Thank you. Now, look at how this works itself out as well. Imagine for a moment that David did kill Saul at that point, took advantage of him. He then teaches all his men that it's right to sneak up on a king in a vulnerable state and assassinate him. Have you thought about it like that? Has that ever occurred to you that if David had just gone ahead and killed the guy when he was going to the toilet and did away with him and took his advantage, what legacy does that then leave David for the rest of his kingship? I think it leaves a king pretty frightened to go to the loo. To be honest with you, don't you think? You have just taught a whole load of your elite leaders, this is what we do with somebody that we don't really like. Or this is what we do with someone when when the time has come. And that would mean that David would have lived in fear of that happening to him for the rest of his his reign. And so can you see that by doing it a godly way, you don't then cast a shadow over yourself later? You're not having to navigate that possibility being directed to you. Doesn't Jesus say, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, put away your sword for those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. So the attitudes and the approaches that you take to other people are directly reflected back to how people will treat you. And so David does this great object lesson in this is how we treat someone who is the Lord's anointed. And of course that stands him in immensely good stead when he becomes king himself. He gains incredible loyalty. He commands incredible loyalty because... Those people around him have seen that working out in how he's treated the king that's still, well, still in position. Don't do things on your journey to realising a particular ambition or desire that you're going to later regret. Think about that really carefully. Don't ever do something to someone else that you can't indefinitely live with. Always use that as your benchmark. Can I live with this forever? Could God live with this forever? That's a great litmus test of, should I do this thing or not? 
uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. He said, each sinful act leaves a mark on that tiny central self, which no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. One man may may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he'll only get laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. So in other words, for some people, that conscience decision which goes a bit wrong might have massive impact on people around them, or it might only have impact on that individual person. But what C.S. Lewis is saying is the soul mark is still the same. Now, don't get me wrong. I think God forgives our sins and they're removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And we have a brand new start and a clean slate and his mercies are new every day. And thank goodness for that. Yeah, amen to that. But I'm not sure we lose our memory when we go to heaven. That's something to think about. So when we're in heaven, I think we kind of have to look back on the life that we led and just be content with that. And that's an interesting perspective on our ethics, isn't it, and on our our morality. We'll have eternity to kind of dwell on, well, I made the right call there, but boy, I didn't make the right call there. And so that kind of should... I'm not trying to be manipulative or coercive here or try and force you to be good. I'm simply pointing out that if we go and join God in heaven, I don't think he obliterates our character and our history completely. I think we'll still have our memory. I don't know. I mean, it's possible we get a brand new start. I don't know. I don't think so. That doesn't seem to stack up with Jesus' nurturing of character and who people are and their identity. Yeah. I, I think that's the case, Fitz. Yeah, I think so. What, where Fitz, what Fitz is talking about there is that story where uh, Abraham, uh, sorry, Jacob crosses the brook and then he wrestles with that man till daybreak. And maybe he's an angel, perhaps it's even God. And Jacob's trying to get a blessing from God. He won't let him go until he gets the blessing. And then what happens is this figure touches him in his hip and he's, he's left with a limp. And it's a very deep story about if you're really confronting yourself in God you are going to be perpetually aware of your own sin and your own shortcomings, always, forever. Uh, and I think that's one of the meanings. I think some other meanings in there as well. The other, one of the other things that would, might bear this idea out, that you carry on the stuff that you've borne or you've done or you've achieved or whatever into eternity and that that's not forgotten, is that I think Jesus has gone to heaven with the marks in his body. I do. I, I, don't, I don't think when we get to heaven they'll be gone. I think they'll be present for us to, to touch and feel for ourselves. Thomas has that opportunity, doesn't he? Unless I can see, I won't believe, but he does see and he does believe. And I think when we get to heaven, we'll potentially have that opportunity for ourselves directly. So I think things continue on into heaven. And so that has a replay back into what's our morality like now? What's our ethics and what's our decision making now? Because we've got to carry that forever. And God's kindness to us is if you, would, if you do the right things, and you're obedient to me, do you know what? You have to carry a whole lot less garbage into heaven in your memory. This is my suggestion to you. Okay? Just what about someone who's lived their whole life doing some very terrible things mm-hmm. and then got saved and, yeah. and then goes to heaven? I've just got such a lot of baggage to take with them, haven't they, to remember it? Yeah, they do. Yes, they do. Yeah. I think that parable of the, the workers in the vineyard is probably the best explanation in answer to that query, which is that you've got some workers that get recruited at 9 o'clock, 
And those are like your people that get saved early on in life, and you've got some people at 11 o'clock and at midday and at 2 o'clock and at 3 o'clock and at 5 o'clock. But really, the reward that the owner gives each of those different people is the same because he's got that right to do that, first of all. But secondly, heaven is the reward of salvation. That, that is what you get when you receive Jesus. That then said, I think there's a separate... So there's the big reward of salvation, but then I think there's a separate reward of, well, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus in your life? You know, how did you live your life in response to who he was? And clearly, if you've only done it at the 11th hour, or you've, you know, lived a dreadful life, but then genuinely repented and come to God, then that gets processed in a slightly different way from maybe someone whose fruitful works have been great for the kingdom. I don't know. I think God... Works it out. Yeah. I think Jesus, I think it's a slight, slight side tangent, but I'll answer your question. I think Jesus did know who touched him, very detailed. You know, he knew exactly, but he asked in order that she would stop being anonymous. She squirreled herself away for years because it brought her shame. She plucked up the courage to just at least try and touch him in a crowd. But it wasn't just a physical healing that he wanted from her. He wanted to heal her social status. And so he said, who touched me? Not because he didn't know, but because he wanted her to say, me, <laughs> here I am. And then Jesus was able to say, okay, it's you, daughter of Abraham, your faith has made you well. And so she, she is restored socially, because in that society, that kind of problem would have, well, it would have made that woman unclean and therefore a reject. And that all of that was on top of the physical problem. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah. So Nathaniel is a slightly different situation. Jesus just loved Nathaniel. Nathaniel because he was just such a righteous guy and just rated him you know he's just one of those people who just thought ah oh, what a nice chap kind of thing so that's a slightly different thing does that, does that help okay so even with the forgiveness of God and taking your thought life captive to Jesus I'm not sure that you lose your memory completely and so my, my third point is only do things you'll only only do things you'll always be able to live with, as far as you're possible, as far as you can. Okay, and ask God's help and strength to do that. So number four, <clears throat> remember your own person. Sorry, remember your difficult person's own relationship with God. Just as you've got a relationship with God, you need to remember that your difficult person has their own relationship with God as well. So you need to maintain a strong awareness of the role of God, not just in your life, but in their life as well. And actually, this is, this is what Dale touched on, I think, really well, which was that David was strongly conscious of the fact that Saul was the Lord's anointed. That really made a, dip, a deep impact on his behaviour towards Saul. Um, and you can imagine, can't you, just how amazing life would become uh, if we were all like David uh, in situations like that that we had a strong awareness of God's plan and heart and intent and hope for other people, not just as it relates to ourselves. 
you know, if you can imagine for a moment, you know, like if you pray and you're wanting stuff to work and you want God to bless you and you want, you know, all these different things and you're stepping into that relationship with God. If you multiply that out exponentially for all the people that you know and you're praying like that for them, that makes a big difference to how you see those people. And David models um, an awareness that God has got a role for Saul that is independent of God's role for David, but he respects it completely. And so for you and I, for tonight, it's having that awareness that God has got a plan and a destiny that might be different for the person sitting next to us or like one of our people across the street. And it applies to unsafe people as well. I still, I would say that God has a plan for everyone on the planet. There's nobody that he doesn't have a plan for. So what I would say out of that is give the ultimate outcome of that conflict or that, remember this is your difficult person you find hard to get on with. Give that to God's care and God's bigger picture because God has his own plans for that person. And so then it becomes a little bit easier to resist the temptation that we all have where we want to appoint ourselves as the instrument of revenge. You ever, ever felt that in your mind? Played that little movie? Had that little dialogue? Like, oh God, if you could just let me, just let me at him. You know, five minutes in an alley, you know, we'll sort this. God, give me that permission, please. You know, he has driven me mad for months. And, and we play these little stories in our head of how we would t- execute revenge. Uh, sometimes not the prettiest side of us comes out. Can I just be honest about that? Uh, you know, so uh, let me share a little story. Yeah, go on, go on, Danny. You know, like, um, maybe you didn't carry this difficult person, but you didn't carry the revenge yourself. But then something terrible happened in their life, maybe as a result of how they've been living, so they sort of went to a, a different person and they had a different... So with you, you're like, okay, I'll leave it to God. But then they did it to someone else and that other person maybe wasn't as yeah. soft as you are <clears throat> yeah. and mm-hmm. they maybe took action or just maybe something tragic happened in their life. So you, as a Christian, is it all right not to, not to feel sorry for them? Okay, I hear what you're saying. Okay. So what Gaudi's asking is if, if you step out of being in the, the revenge equation and then something grotty happens to that person, is it okay to sort of feel like slightly... Yeah, well, that's okay. But I have no feeling, like I have no remorse of what happened. But like, yeah, I just have no remorse of what happened. I think it's very human to just say, well... Yeah, it wasn't me that did it, but look what's happened to you. You know, I, I, I think that's very. However, I think the overarching. It's very honest of you, and I think we all feel that. I, I think we do. I think the overarching of thing, that first point of treat your people as you'd want to be treated yourself. So really, if you've got that situation and you're being kind of a, just a tiny bit smug that something bad's happened, which seems like God's revenge on them, um, maybe that's not the best thing. You know, maybe we need to lift our game a bit and say, ah, oh, that, that is a bit sad. However, I do acknowledge that it's perfectly kind of understandable for us to have a private smirk about that. You know, like, it, you know, you sometimes see these YouTube videos. I saw one that I did laugh at, which is a bit unfortunate, where there was this guy who was being very abusive to a cyclist, I think. And there was this thing going on and on, on between them. And the cyclist managed to cycle off down the pavement. And this really nasty guy was chasing him, but then fell headlong just fell kind of flat on his face. And it was funny. I mean, I just thought you were being so horrible to that cyclist. I think you kind of deserve what you got. But then I thought, hmm, that's not very nice of me to think that. You know? <laughs> so, but I wasn't involved in that. That wasn't me taking revenge. 
I, I would always try and run everything past that test of the first question was, is this what I would really want for me? Mm, not really, because I would want another chance. You know, we all, we all want another chance. It's, we're very, very good at not wanting other people to have a chance, are we? As Jonah shows us. Chances? Sorry? What if you've had a hundred chances? Ah, uh, well, then that's something I think you need to leave to God. you just got to... Be self-controlled and look away, Gaudi. It's just an example. It's a, it's a, that I'm going yeah. yeah, that's right. It's happened to my I'm friend. Not going to yeah. Do that, but it's just an example. Okay, let me tell you a, a brief story. Um, uh, at our previous church, Chloe, Chloe and I's previous church, uh, we, we went through a bit of a difficult time where we the, the income went down. We lost some people, and it was a bit awkward. And um, we had to stand our cleaner down. I've not told you this story, have I? You know the story? Okay. So we had a cleaner who was paid a couple of hundred pounds every month to come and do cleaning, you know, each week for us. And because all of our income went right downhill, uh, we had to lay her off. And I was very apologetic to her. I said, listen, things are very different now, and we can't afford to keep you on. Now, she didn't attend the church. She was, so, she was in a kind of semi-contractual position with the church, but we had to stop that. And basically, that relationship went very, very downhill very, very fast. And she really just didn't like us at all, did she, Chloe? She was not not happy at all. Uh, so much so that, for instance, if I would kind of be driving in a particular place with my kids to school, if she was standing at the crossroads, she would, if she saw me in the car, she would actually just turn her back on me. You know, she was really, really kind of upset for a long time, okay? Um, and I'll be honest and I'll say, I did toy with the idea on more than one occasion of going and visiting them and having it out with them, saying, now listen, there's nothing I could do about that. If you're upset about that, then you know, take it up with the people who left. It's not my fault. I, I didn't mean for this to happen. I thought, no, that's not going to really work, and we'll just let time heal it. You know, heal the situation. So, um, a couple of years later, it's Christmas time, and there's a, another lady who lives across the road from us. And both Chloe and I get this prompting that it'd be great to invite this lady to to Christmas dinner. And she's not in our church; she's just a neighbour. And um, so she comes to dinner. She has a wonderful Christmas lunch and uh, really enjoys it. And then. About a couple of months after that, um, my son George and I, we're walking in town, and we're walking through this bit of the precinct in town, it's about 200 yards long, a kind of connecting bit. So there's a high wall on this side, and there's a bit of kind of urban dual carriageway on this side, and there's this long stretch of walking. So me and George are walking this way, like this. And then who should come the other way but our neighbour, who'd had Christmas lunch with us, plus the woman who hated us from the cleaner, okay? <laughs> now there was nowhere for this woman to run. She couldn't dive off into a shop because there were no entrances. It was just blank walls on either side. And she kind of, we arrived at this foursome, like in this precinct. I just didn't know what to say. I was like, oh, you know, inside. Well, what do I say? And um, so anyway, uh, what then happens is just the most amazing thing. Because I prayed that this woman would get healed or see us from a different perspective. Anyway, this lady who'd had Christmas dinner with us said, oh, Oh, I must introduce you to the Whittons. They're just a wonderful family. They had me round for Christmas. They were so sweet to me. I felt like royalty. They treated us really specially. We had a wonderful day. And this woman's having to stand there and listen to a compliment that isn't coming out of my mouth. It's nothing to do with me. And I kind of think, God, you did that really well. I would not have the skill on any level to even set something like that up. But you did that really well. I've waited. I've given it to you. 
This woman has heard a compliment from an independent source that she couldn't get out of. And do you know what? That's good enough for me. I'm okay with that. And I, and I, and I wasn't smug about it. I just, she made her excuses and went off. And I said bye. And I was good about it. I wasn't all like... <laughs> you know, I wasn't. Although I did have a tiny little bit of me inside that went like that, if I'm honest. Just coming back on Gaudi's point. <laughs> but can you see that if you leave something to God and you don't appoint yourself as the instrument of revenge, God does it way, way better than you can. You just might have to wait a bit longer. But he takes you out of the equation and he'll do it really, really well. Okay? So that's number four. So remember your own difficult person's relationship with God. Remember your difficult person has their own relationship with God. Number five, um, line up all your ducks in a row. Now that's an English expression. So for the foreign nationals among you, I'll explain that. What it means is, when, when, when British people say, oh, we need to line up all your ducks in a row, it basically means to say, you need to get your team all together. You need to get all your people with you and on board. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that you have got to get the people and the things that you're responsible for properly aligned around you and your cause and your standards. So why is that important in this situation? Well, well, we see how David does it. He rebukes his men and he doesn't let them attack Saul. He says, that you are not to touch Saul. We don't do that. Okay? So the teaching out of that for us would be that that means the people that we've got responsibility for and all those people that we see as on our side, and often these, when we have difficult people in our life, it often opens out into sides, doesn't it? So we've got our family and our friends and our, our work colleagues that we like, and we're, we're against person X over there that's like a real pain or that different company or that different, whatever it is, and you get sides, don't you, in, in situations. So what that means is that we need to make sure all the people on our side or in our camp, in our group, don't become loose cannons. They don't become agents of us going and seeing revenge carried out. Now, if you think about it, we've all been the victim of someone who's made sure that they themselves are beyond reproach, but they've somehow managed to tell all their mates that they're really hacked off with you, and then one of their mates has come and had it out with you. Have you ever had that? Yeah, most of us would have probably experienced something like that, where the person themselves, you know, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth, and they're all innocent and sweet, but you know bad mouthing's gone on, and words got round that they don't like you. And then before you know it, some independent person, maybe you've even never met, comes and gives you what for. And you're like, don't even know you. You know, why are you involved? And what's happened is that that person has not kept their ducks in a row. They've not kept their people on side. Now, what's so admirable about David in the cave is he says to his troops, you are not to do that. You stick with my line of authority here. We don't, I don't want you going and executing revenge on my behalf. So it's not just about managing yourself. It's about taking care of the group or the tribe that you're with or whoever's on your side that you see is on your side and making sure they're on board with your position. Now, that's quite hard to do because people are free agents and they often go off and do um, not great stuff. I ran this session this morning past Wednesday Fellowship who come in in the mornings and uh, John Carlos pointed this great story out which I'd forgotten about, uh, which is that there was a king of England called Henry II and uh, he fell out with the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, a guy called Thomas a Beckett. And apparently, well there's some debate about this, but apparently he said something in his court one day, like, oh, who will rid me of this hateful priest? Said it in anger. Four of his knights heard that and went on horseback down to Canterbury and killed Thomas a Beckett in the cathedral. 
and he became a martyr. Now that's a classic case of somebody in authority not taking great care over the people in his group and making sure they're on board and making sure that they're part of his standard. So let me put it differently. David takes care to make sure all the people on his side are with him in the responses he gives. So he does it with integrity. He doesn't allow them to attack Saul. He not only controls himself, but he controls those loyal to him not to let fly either. And that says a lot about him as a leader. So what that means for you and I, practically speaking, is if you want to spend the afternoon sounding off to uh, your, about your awkward person to someone else uh, among sympathetic company, make sure that that company doesn't go off and do something about it for you. And the best way to make sure that that doesn't happen is don't tell that person at all. Now, have you noticed that actually one of the best people to sound off to is God? Has that ever occurred to you? One of the best people in the world to sound off to and have a rant to is God. Mm -hmm. I've gone to the top of, the hit of a hill in a fog in winter and shouted at God because I was so hacked off about something. Really, really shouted until my, my vocal cords have gone. <laughs> but that was the right thing to do and God can take it. God's big enough to take your anger. Don't go and do that to the people you know, that are around you that then could then go and cause damage. Uh, I would put it to you that David was particularly good at this, and actually the book of the Psalms, there's 150 Psalms in which David does a lot of sounding off to God. You know, you might need to get into a private space with God and say about your difficult person, God, would you grind their teeth to dust, and would you do this, and would you put a pox on their family? Right, God, you've heard my heart, now I'll go back and be decent. And God's gone, wow, get you, you are angry. But do you know what? You've had that between you and God, haven't you? You haven't caused damage to the person to your, to your left and to your right, and you haven't caused damage to your difficult person. Really key. So, so can you basically tell God how you want the revenge to happen? Oh, absolutely. If you read through the Psalms, have a read of some of have a, have a read through some of the Psalms. David says some pretty straight down the line things about what he really wants to happen to his enemies. When you read the Psalms, it's quite shocking what he asks for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone's on Gaudi's good team. They don't want to be falling out of Gaudi. So. What is interesting to me is this links directly in with Jesus' teaching on how we deal with our grievances. So in Matthew 18, 15, it says, if you've got a problem with someone, you go and talk to them about it. And uh, in fact, this is actually a management and a leadership secular thing that goes on a lot in our society now. Leadership consultants will come in and they'll talk to you about a process called triangulation. Okay, now triangulation is, as it sounds, it's like a triangle between three people. And so triangulation is when A is really upset with B, they should really, according to Matthew 18, go and talk to B and say, hey, you really hacked me off when you did that. Do you know what that cost me? And then B needs to hear that and process that and that needs to be direct. But what often happens is, instead of going to B and processing that, a goes and has a long slanging match to C and goes, oh, you know, B did this, and B did that, and B did the other. And then C's drawn into it. So to make that real, I've got a big problem with Craig. Craig's stood up and heckled me on a Sunday morning, and I'm really upset, okay? So, yeah. And, and I'm really, you know, and I'm angry about it, but then I go and moan to Chloe about it all week at night. Now, Chloe's my wife, and she's on my side. She wants to help me out. Really, the best thing that Chloe could do is say, now listen, Nick, you've got a problem with this. Yeah, maybe he has sinned against you, maybe he hasn't, but let's go together to 
Craig, and sort this out. So if you ever find yourself in that position of being the C person, the confidant, the somebody that where you're processing someone else's grievances with someone else, have the character to steer that person back into a Matthew 18 framework. It's really hard, but it's the most healthy thing to do. And offer to go with that person and help that process work itself through. Yeah, so you get the triangulation thing. It's really just a modern way of seeing Matthew 18, verse 15. Greg has Sorry? Greg has Has he not? No, he hasn't no, you haven't done any heckling. I'm just giving that as an example. Please don't go to this room thinking Craig's heckled me because he hasn't. He's lovely. Okay. So that's number five. Uh, number five was line up all your ducks in a row. And David does that really well. Number six, be mindful of your body language. <clears throat> Be mindful of your body language. So make an effort to communicate respectfully to your opponent or the person you have difficulty with. Make that effort. What does David do at the end of the, the, this, this little situation in 1 Samuel 24? He comes out of the cave and he throws himself on the ground before Saul. Now I'm not suggesting that's culturally the correct thing to do today. That would be really weird. But what it teaches us, the underlying principle is, make sure your body language is appropriate to the dignity that you're wanting to give to somebody. So like if me and Claudia have a problem, I'm, it's not going to be greatly helped if I go, yeah, my, like that, my, you know, my body, that's not going to help my, my negotiation with Claudio in the slightest. You know, I'm willing to bet that probably 90% of the fights that start in town late at night is blokes going mm -hmm, with their body language. You know, they want to muscle up to it, you know, and just kind of have a whole deal. And they're using their body language to kind of make it worse. So the teaching out of this is use your, David's, David's model to us is, um, use your body language to make it better. Apparently, 70, 80% of your communication comes across through your body language. Apparently, not just your words. So work on that. So it's completely right to show deference and respect through your body language and your attitude to the person you find difficult to get along with. Um, you, you know, words are going to do nothing if your body language is completely the opposite of what your words are trying to say. Is that okay? Yeah? So that's number six. Be mindful of your body language. Number seven, at the right time, tell the truth or tell your truth. Tell the, tell the thing that you need to tell to that person. There comes a time in your awkward relationships when it's really right to tell your side of the story. Tell the truth about how things have been for you. Now that can be facilitated by like a preemptive act of kindness and so on, which might feel a bit staged to you. Notice how David comes out and explains in quite a bit of detail how he sees things to Saul at the same time as making Saul aware that he acted very well towards him. So he comes out, and the bit of cloth that he's got off of Saul's robe is like a bit like a white flag, isn't it? Saying, listen, I could have done this, but I didn't. Would you hear me out, please? And I actually think it's really good practice at some point in your conflicts with your difficult people is to make it really crystal clear that you mean well. You could start a conversation like saying, I know we've got off on the wrong foot, but hear my heart, I want you to win. I'm for you, I'm not against you. You know, I don't know what's gone on, I don't know why we have this difficulty, but it's not in my heart to feel bad, to, to act badly towards you, and if I've come across badly, I'm sorry. And take those preemptive steps to explain your truth and explain your situation. Now, this is a part of the equation that I think quite a few people, they kind of bog out on it. They don't do it, because it's hard, it's really difficult to speak out what you think is true. So, 
summon up the courage in God to speak truth to power. Because these situations have got power, haven't they? They have a power in them. And it's hard to, to speak to that sometimes. It's hard to build up your courage to say, listen, yeah, you know, when you said those things, I was devastated by you saying that. But I need to tell you that I was devastated because it's probably affecting how I'm being towards you. You know, and that's hard to say those things. But I think what David models to us in this scene is he says his stuff and he's truthful and he's fair and he gets his body language right and he takes his opportunity. And so sometimes timing's key. Sometimes you try and say the right thing and it's just lost. Get your timing right, but then say the right thing. Uh, unless you tell them, you could end up living with them having hurt you for a long time and doing a whole forgiveness thing. And also, they're then robbed of a chance to grow and change. Now, our difficult people, they're difficult because they don't grow and change, do they? I mean, you know, if they grew and changed, they would have been sorting themselves out long ago. But there is still a remote chance that they might change if you tell them what was wrong. Some people have been genuinely surprised. When I plucked up the courage to say, listen, what, this was what was wrong, they had no idea that the thing that I was raising with them was an issue. And sometimes people have been profusely apologetic. They have said, I am so sorry, I did not realise that that had happened. I don't want to sort that out. Now, that's rare. I'll be, I'll be dead straight with you. That isn't always the case. Some people would just laugh in your face and like, get over yourself. Or, well, I didn't, you know, or, or they brush you off. And then, you know, whatever. But say your truth at the right time. So that's number seven. At the right time, tell your truths. Number eight, coming in towards the end. Accept that your difficult people are just unaware. Accept that your difficult people are just unaware. And this is an important thing to say because people who are awkward or that they're very difficult in our lives somehow have this capacity to be completely unaware of how awkward they are. Have you ever noticed that? So... In this story, I don't think Saul is the most aware person on the planet. You know, if you go into a cave, I don't know about you, if you go into a cave to pop to the toilet, maybe you've never done that, but I would take a bit of time to make sure the cave's empty. You know, I would. I would just check it out, make sure there's no bears in there or whatever. Or Gaudi. Yeah, or, or, or a group of soldiers who are bent, you know, bent on killing me. I would, take a, I would take a little while to check that out. And Saul doesn't seem to do this. So he's not that aware, I don't think. He's not aware that somebody has stolen up to him and managed to snip a bit off, off of his clothes. That's weird. I mean, I'm sorry, but I just think that's really odd. You are, most people are aware of what's going on with their clothes most of the time. I mean, Jesus knew straight away when someone touched him in a crowd. I mean, I don't know, just Saul does not seem very aware, does he? And then, this is the killer for me, notice after David's really excellent bit of truth-telling, he says a great little speech, doesn't he, David? It's really good. Saul says this in verse 16, and this is an absolute giveaway for me. He says, is that your, vo is that your voice, David? Like, yeah, Saul, it's totally my voice. I've just given you the most amazing speech. You've, you know, we're at war, remember? You know, you're trying to kill me, I'm trying to kill you. We've had this situation, I've treated you decently, you've heard my heart, and then you're saying, like, is that your voice? Like, come on. Well, yeah, of course it's my voice. Now, that is the way, that is a classic hallmark of that you're dealing with a difficult person, that they're not on your level at all. You try and say something deep and meaningful to them, or truthful, or kind, or preemptive, and it feels like it falls totally flat, like they don't get it. 
But that's the why they're your difficult people. Because if that didn't happen, you'd connect and you'd click and you'd sort it out. Do you see what I'm saying here? So Saul's in a different space mentally. And that puts him apart and makes him difficult to communicate with. And so one of the main ways our difficult people are difficult is that we can feel totally overlooked by them. They don't get us at all. And what they say and what they do betrays that we have no significance to them sometimes, and that hurts. So a top tip for you in life is focus your good energy on people who are able to focus their good energy back. All right? Now, what I'm saying there is I'm not saying you should rule out all the souls in, in this world and only focus on people like David. What I'm saying is be careful about how much time and energy you give to souls. Because if they're always going to be difficult, they're always derailing you, they're always not hearing you, they're always like being weird around you, they never get you properly, well, perhaps it's time to find a new set of friends. Yeah? And, and kind of build on those people who are worth building with. Now, I'm not saying don't be dis, you know, just, just, just cut off all the difficult relationships. You have to navigate these difficult relationships. And that's what this teaching is all about. But think about, okay, think about the stewardship of your energy of you. I would say do it on, on an 80-20 basis. Try and build good relationships in 80% of your life and navigate the 20% as best you can. Okay? So, and I would also say don't waste time wondering how your difficult people became difficult. You can be chasing your tail forever about that. So number nine. Uh, do, however... This is a kind of counterpoint to my last point. Do try and understand your difficult people. Take some time to try and understand them. So number nine is, try and understand your difficult people. You might, once in a while, just be rewarded with an unexpected insight into their vulnerability. So David has been given the situation where, in a physical sense, Saul is vulnerable. But what then follows is an emotional vulnerability. And what is it? It's his confession that he's worried about his family line. Have you noticed that he asks David and he says, the thing that I'm concerned about here is that my family line is just going to be wiped out from the face of the earth. And actually, that's, that's the heart of it for Saul. That's where he gets real. That's where there's a connection. So all the other stuff is difficult. The core of where Saul is coming from is, I'm so concerned that my line, my, my family house... You know, that was important to, to Jews, and they had, you know, they had a system of genealogies, and they wanted to make sure that the family line carried on. And that's Saul's deep insecurity that feeds all of his weirdness. And he actually reveals it to David in this situation. So what does that mean for you and I? Once in a while, your difficult person won't just put them in, themselves in a vulnerable situation with you physically, if you like. They might do it emotionally and show you something about how they're thinking that you go, ah... Oh, I get where you're coming from now. I understand you a bit more. I know that you, I don't know what it is, you can't handle big crowds. I know that you have massive father issues. I know that you were an addict at one time. I know whatever. And so whatever that thing is that that person reveals, it equips you to handle them better. David then now understands, right, Saul has got this issue going on in the background, which is that he's got this massive concern about his family line. Understanding is often a great key to helping us love people properly and consistently. So if we know their drivers and their pressure points and their hopes and their fears, the stuff they don't usually let you see, it makes sense when we do see it and we can start to put it into context. Now once in a while, it's very rare, 
But once in a while, when you understand what that person's deep insecurity is or their deep thing that drives them, actually it can change everything. And you can become good friends with that person when you get that key. Don't rule that out. So sometimes you're a really difficult person. There's something about them. When you understand it and they know that you understand it, they're almost relieved that you know about it and they gravitate towards you and you gravitate towards them because of your understanding has, been, has built a bridge. Now, I would say that's rare because your difficult people are difficult people, okay? But once in a while, you'll form an unlikely friendship with your difficult people when you understand what really drives them, okay? Number 10, last point. <coughs> ultimately, revenge is God's. We've touched on this a little bit already, but ultimately, revenge is God's. One of the most important reactions we can take with our difficult people is that God will handle them for us. David says, he says this, is really key actually, he says, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Do not give in to that temptation to be the person who carries out the revenge. Now, it's really interesting to me, David gets another opportunity later, in a very similar scenario, to steal into Saul's camp, take away a water jug and a spear and run off. And he could have killed Saul then, and he repeats it. It's almost as though God is giving Saul multiple opportunities to get it right. And sadly, Saul doesn't seem to do that. He doesn't get it. Um, he's had, so Saul's had plenty of opportunities, and it's quite interesting to me that... Do you remember one of the things that Saul does is he gets an evil spirit on him, he chucks spears at, at David, and David has to dodge out of the way. Very interesting how David takes the spear and the water jug, and he just goes off, and he doesn't throw it at Saul. He doesn't take revenge very directly with a spear uh, in that way. Romans 12, uh, 19 to 21 says this, Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's very interesting is the final point before we go into how we might respond to this and we close. Saul does actually meet his demise. You know what Gaudi's point earlier of, what, well, what happens to those difficult people, you know. Um, but it's not at David's hands. In fact, David responds to Saul's concern about his family line by taking in that lame lad. I think it's called Mibofasheth. Is it something like that? Yeah, with the battling. And he takes him into the family household. He looks after him. And he does his best to honour what Saul has asked of him. But ultimately, 1 Chronicles 10, it, it gives an account of how the Philistines take Saul out. And, and they, he, get, he does get killed. But it's not by David. Okay? So David has lived a life in integrity. And, and those are, this story is why David's such a good, such a good uh, leader.